Well, turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're continuing, of course, our study of Paul's letter to Timothy. It's a powerful letter. It gives us a lot of information that we can apply both individually and then also as a local church. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul is dealing with relationships, and we saw that already when he talked about older men and older women and younger men and younger women and widows and all of this. Well, in this passage today, Paul gives instructions dealing with the elders. In fact, he's talking with the elders within the body, the leaders of the church, and we're going to see how that ties together. We see not only the provision for these elders, but discipline and selection as well. This indeed is an important area within the body of Christ. The leadership sets the example for the rest of the body, both in word and deed, as they oversee the flock. So may we realize the importance of elders, those who are in leadership in a church, and then may we see biblically how we select them and how we deal with them. There's just a lot in this passage, and we'll see it. We'll go fairly quickly through it, but I want you to see it this morning. You know, as we start, I want you to think about leadership and how important it is. It's so important within the body of Christ, the ministry and direction of each local body is established and fulfilled through the influence of the leaders. In other words, the leaderships are the key. They're the ones that help that the church grow and, and the direction and all those things. J. Oswald Sanders, in a book, is called Spiritual Leadership. And I think it's the best book ever written on leadership in a church. And he, he deals with the whole issues of men being raised up out of the body to take positions of leadership. He says this, the overriding need of a church is for leadership that is authoritative, spiritual, and sacrificial. Those three things. I want you to think about it. First of all, authoritative. People want to be led and love to be led by one who knows where they're going and inspires confidence. So when a person is in a place of leadership, they've got to know what they believe and where they're going and as they lead the church. The second thing about a leader is that they would be spiritual. And this is powerful because here's what he said. He says, leadership that is unspiritual, even though attractive will result in moral, spiritual bankruptcy. It is true. There may be leadership that is very attractive and people that can draw crowds and can speak very well, but if it's not spiritual leadership, eventually it will be bankrupt. That's what happens. The third thing is he says sacrificial. It needs to be sacrificial because it is to be modeled after the life of the one who gave himself as the sacrifice for us, Jesus Christ. So the importance of leadership within body is incredible. Leadership is the backbone of the local church. They set the example. They oversee the, the, the teaching, the ministry, and they shepherd the flock. Leadership takes mature men. And many times people that, people that want to be in leadership, it takes time. This is a true story. I know of a church that was formed. And when the church was formed, there were four men who were in places of, of positions of leadership. And, and as the time went by, they decided they would t- take one of these four men and they would put him as the head. And back at that church at that time, they had deacons. So they said, you're going to be the head deacon. They failed to take time to examine him biblically. And once he got in charge, he changed totally. There was no humility, no love, only power, no servant attitude. Realize that there is a problem when people are placed in leadership without proper examination. That's why in this passage this morning, Paul is going to warn Timothy, and he's going to tell him, don't put people in leadership too fast. Take time to examine them. So the responsibilities of elders, which we're going to talk about in our passage this morning, they're, they are they're very important because they must be, uh, must be mature 
qualified men. Now, as we continued our study, we're in chapters 5 and 6, you know, the last part of the book, and there's a lot in there because he deals with relationships. In fact, here's what we've done. Over these last few weeks, in chapter 5 and 6, we have already seen and will see, we've seen older and younger men and women, we've seen widows within the body, we're talking about elders this morning, those who are in leadership, we'll talk about slaves, interaction with masters and all that kind of thing, and then he'll talk about false teachers. This will be about the fifth time in the letter that he deals with false teachers. So it's pretty powerful. It's all the way through there. This morning, we're going to talk about elders. And it's very powerful because we as a local church, you have to do everything by the scripture. That's the key. I thank, I thank the Lord for this church from the very beginning, all the decisions, the things that we wanted to do about the leadership and how the church functions always goes back to the scripture. If you think about leadership, if you go back to 1 Timothy 3, I don't want you to turn there, but in 1 Timothy 3, he gives us the characteristics of elders and deacons. This morning, he talks a little bit different about it. He talks about paying those, and he talks about what happens when they do things wrong. Let me break down the passage for you. We're going to see provision for the elders. We touched on verses 17 and 18 last week. We just barely got on it, so I just want to go back over it again with you. It's talking about the teaching and serving elders. And then he talks about the discipline of elders. That's why I put it that way because he's talking about what if there's sin? How do you deal with sin in the life of an elder or someone who's in a position of leadership in a church? So there's a lot in this passage, and I just want you to see it. As we begin, let me remind you of something. I want to kind of give a quick review. But let's talk about elders. I want to raise three questions as we talk about elders. Number one, who are they? What are they like? What do they do? Or what are they to do? Let's talk about who they are. That's the very first thing. Who are the elders? These are men, sometimes called elders, sometimes called bishops, sometimes overseers, pastors. In the Bible, they're all the same person. In other words, you'll see a Bible passage and it'll say, if anyone wants to be an overseer, well, that's the same as the pastor. That's the same as the elder. It's the same person. The word elder means a mature man. The word bishop means one who oversees. The one pastor means one who shepherds. So simply put, the elders are this. They are mature men who oversee the body as they shepherd the flock. That's who they are. The second thing is, what are they like? What are they, what are they like? The characteristics are found in 1 Timothy 3, but simply put together for you, three big areas, uh, come up as far as self. They have to be morally pure and righteous men. As far as their family is concerned, they have to manage their home and children. As far as others are concerned, they must have a good reputation within and with outside the body. That's just an overview. If you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, it gives much more details. The third thing about elders is what do they do? And if you want to just look at it simply, they do this. They shepherd the flock, they teach the word, they oversee the ministry, and they set the example. So there's a lot there. Now, as we get into the passage, and I mentioned this last week, we're going to see that there's two ways you can divide elders. And we looked at this last week, teaching elders and serving elders. And let me remind this. We're going to see how it fits, fits together. Let's go to verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, he says the elders who rule well, which means they oversight, they do their ministry, they do their, you might say, do their jobs well, they're considered worthy of double honor. What does it mean, double honor? Well, we talked about it last week. Double honor means two things, respect and pay. There is respect for the office. If any person is in the office of an elder, there's a respect there. But then there's a second thing, and that's pay, because the double honor is the person is paid. So not only are they respected, but they get paid. Now, let me tell you this, and we've talked about this. I mentioned it last week. But when you think about elders, there are two big groups again, and I mentioned it. There's teaching elder and serving elder. Now, let me talk about a teaching elder. 
if it goes back to Ephesians 4, that there are some elders, some people who have, who are in the body, who have been raised up to positions of leadership, elders, that also have the ability to teach. Ephesians 4 says there's a spiritual gift. He says he gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. This is the elder teacher. This is a person who's been placed as an elder in a place of leadership in the church who has the gift of teaching as well. Now, by the grace of God, that's me. I get to, I've been, I'm an elder in our church, but I have the gift of pastor teacher, so I get to teach the scripture. And so we see that there are elders who are, who have usually an elder who's behind the pulpit who is supposed to be teaching the scripture should have the gift of pastor teacher. There are other elders who, who are called serving elders. They rule well. They do not necessarily do the public teaching. Uh, at Countryside, we have six elders. Uh, I'm the one that do the public teaching. I have that gift. Uh, so it's, it's, and I love it. I, I, it's a great thing. We've talked about this, that in some churches, the, the bottom line is the person who is up here week after week in local churches should have the gift of pastor-teacher. That means he should love to study the Bible and to teach the Bible. When I talk to people, we find that a lot of churches, people who are in the place of the pulpit, maybe do not have the gift of pastor-teacher. And, and, and it's easy to tell that. I talked to some friends. I've got a friend or two that are in ministry. They're pastors of churches. They don't have those gifts. And they do not look forward to Sunday. They struggle all during the week to try to put together something to talk about. When they get up there, they're not very comfortable. They do not want to do that. They don't have that gift. They really shouldn't be behind the pulpit. Me, on the other hand, I, I love it. I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait to study. I can hardly wait to put it together. And I can hardly wait to, to be up here because that's the spiritual gift that God has given to me. So now what he says in this passage, now here's the key. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. That means there's some elders who serve well. And, and then notice what he says, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. What we find is the elder who is responsible for the public teaching even then was paid because that's the double honor. The double honor is respect and pay. And notice he goes, he says this about they work hard, they labor in the preaching and the teaching. So the bottom line is there are some elders who have the gift of teaching, who love to teach, who get, who get to do that. And as a whole, it's, the, it's a good responsibility that the church is able to pay them so that they get the double honor so they can spend their time doing that. Listen, let me tell you, I, I count it as a privilege. Y'all allow me to do this. There was a time in my life that I was working at Mississippi State. I was coaching at Mississippi State. And so I coached all day. I came home at night and I studied because I taught a Bible study on Tuesday night, a Bible study on Thursday night. I taught a Sunday school class. And then I taught a class at night on Sunday nights. I taught four times a week. I did not get paid to do that study and teaching. I got paid to be a coach. But as God changed my life and I resigned from Mississippi State and got to go to seminary and then come here, now I get paid to get to do this. I, I count it as the greatest privilege in the world that I get to do this. And so it, this idea, this passage says that those who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, uh, not all elders get to teach, uh, and, and some elders who don't teach still get paid. That's just how it works. Now, he goes on and gives us biblical basis for this. Now, by the way, uh, I've got this verse for you right here. 1 Corinthians 9, 14. Basically, leaders who do this are to get the double honor, respect, and pay. 1 Corinthians says those who, make their, those who uh, proclaim the good news make their living from the good news. So he's saying those who full-time invest their lives into doing this type of ministry can get their living from that. He goes on in this passage and actually quotes two verses to back up the fact that you pay these 
these people. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, the first verse there, Deuteronomy 25, 4, is the one about you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And then it's Luke 10, 7, that says the laborer is worthy of his wages. So the bottom line, he says that there are those who get to teach and can get paid for doing that. And as I said, at Countryside, we have six elders, five serving elders, one teaching elder. My responsibility is to teach the word. Second Timothy 4, uh, 2, 4 says, preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instructions. That's my job and my responsibility. Um, so Paul says that. Now, sometimes money becomes an issue. I read the story of a man who wanted a race, so he went in to see his boss, and he said, there are three companies after me. And the boss said, really, what companies? He said, well, the electric company, the gas company, and the telephone company. Because I'm trying to, you know, he needed a raise. But I, I, I want to be really honest with you. Personally, I, I've said this last week, so this is not new. I would teach, I would study and teach the Word of God for nothing. I don't do it because I get paid. I love it. That's my spiritual gift. I love to study and to teach the Word of God and to be with you and to shepherd the flock and do all of those things. But I thank God that this body of believers has always, from the beginning, and this, uh, this summer will be 25 years that I've been here, and from the very beginning, this church has always made it possible that I would get to study and teach, the, study and, teach and, and all of that without having another job. So you have always taken care of me in that way. I thank God for you. I count it as a privilege to be your pastor and to be a pastor teacher. And the fact that you provide for myself and my family, you've always done that. So this passage basically says there are elders who rule well. They get double honor, especially the ones who teach and preach. And then he quotes a couple of verses to say it's okay to pay people when they do ministry this way. There are a lot of you who, in fact, most of you, you do ministry all over the place. You do not get paid to do it. You have your income in some other ways. God's grace for me is he's allowed me to get to be a pastor and get to do this. Now, from this, he moves to another little area, and that's about the discipline of elders, okay? The discipline of elders. In other words, what about when someone who's in a position of leadership in a church as an elder, and they do something wrong or there's a problem there, what do you do? Paul gives instructions in three things. Here's what he says. He says, when do you deal with the elders? What do you do when you deal with these elders? And how do you do it? So let me show you the three things. The first of all is when do you deal with them? Notice what he says. He says in verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So he starts off with the negative side, but the positive side would be this. If there's two or three people who have come and made accusations against a person in leadership, you, you think about it, you, you, you deal with it. But there has to be two or three making accusations. Here's why. Because when a person's in leadership, whether he's a pastor or an elder or whatever, positions in a local church, anyone can make any statement about that person they want to. They can just say anything they want. And so people can make accusations, and that's why he says there must be two or three witnesses about whatever they say is wrong. Now, this follows a biblical pattern. If you know in Matthew 18 that if you think someone did something wrong or somebody has offended you in some way, Matthew 18 says for you to go to that person by yourself one-on-one. -on -one. And if they listen to you and understand all this, you've won your brother is what it says. But if they don't, you go back with two or three other people. You go, and that's where you have the two or three witnesses that tie together. In the Old Testament, under the Mosaic Law, if a person made an accusation against a person, one person couldn't do it. There had to be two or three. 
so that a person can't just say, this person did this, and everybody goes, well, you're out because this guy said you did that. And you say, oh, I didn't do that. This guy said you did it. You had to have two or three witnesses. He says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. It is so easy for rumors and false accusations to be made. Herbert, who wrote commentary on the book of 1 Timothy, says there must be two or three. He said must there has to be two or three because the influence of even the best servant minister can be destroyed through idle gossip. Rumors and gossip are not enough. There has to be two or three witnesses. Chuck Swindoll said that the the tongue is capable of stirring up more choking scandalous dust than any other tool. Rumors have destroyed more than one ministry. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln's grave has been dug up twice? The first time is after they buried him, rumors began to surface that he really wasn't dead. That it was all a hoax. And so they went and they dug up the coffin and there was his body. Fourteen years later, once again, rumors were that someone had broken in and stolen the body of Abraham Lincoln. So they dug up his grave again and his body was there. I have to tell you a story. I have a, I have a friend that's been in ministry. I think he's in his, his 60th year of ministry. And when he was about 25, he was at a ministry. It was a camp. And he was helping young people. He was about 25. And this girl who was 15 came and told somebody that he tried to do something to her. He did not, but that's what she said. All of a sudden, they, have to, they bring him in. And I mean, he's about to lose his responsibility. And he's already been to seminary and ordained. And he's, you know, this is part of it. And, and all of a sudden, his whole life and ministry is in jeopardy. And they talked to him, and he said, I, I never did any of that. Well, finally they brought the girl back in, and she told the truth. And she said, I just made it up. And they asked her, why did you make it up? And she said, well, I just wanted to see what would happen. Well, the truth is, see, just one person making up something is not enough. That's why it says you cannot receive an accusation unless there are two or three witnesses. Because anybody can say anything. Truth is, those in leadership are open to attacks and slander. That's what happens. So here's the key. Be sure you have the facts. That's what he's telling Timothy. Be sure you have the facts if you're going to deal with something like this. Now, what happens? What happens? What, what do you do with, when there is a problem? Let's say that there is an accusation. You go to the, to the elder and he says, yeah, I did that, but I, you know, I'm not doing that anymore. And, and you may solve it all. But what if the person continues to do wrong? Notice what verse 20 says. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. So the next aspect is if somebody who's in a position of leadership in a church continues to do wrong, he says you rebuke them with a public. Because see, they're in a public position. The person in a public position has a public rebuke. Ironside said, the greater is one position, the more careful his behavior should be. Elders who sin are to be dealt with publicly because they're in a public leadership position in a local church. He goes on to say, and this is why it's so powerful. He says, those who continue to sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful. Now, there's two ways to look at the passage. Some say that it says rebuke in the presence of all, all of the other elders. You get this elder in before the elders and rebuke them. 
The best way I think the passage talks about it is you rebuke them in a public manner for the church. When it goes on to say, so that the rest of them will be fearful, I think in the context of the passage, it's the rest of the elders. Other people in places of leadership will realize that it is a great responsibility to be in leadership and you have to live a pure life. There are maybe some of you in this passage would say, ooh, if I saw somebody have to be rebuked publicly, that would also help me to, to be fearful of sinning. That could be. But I think the flow of the passage is dealing with the elders in a local body. It is a very powerful thing. Now, sometimes, let's face it, sometimes those in leadership abuse their power and authority. Here's what they say. They say this. I'm the exception. Listen, I told you about my friend that I went to visit him, and he's a pastor, and he parked in the handicapped parking space. You remember the story? And as I pulled up, we pulled up, I said, you're parking in the handicapped place. He said, I'm the pastor. I can park anywhere, you want to, uh, anywhere I want to. No, no, he cannot. He's not an exception to the rules. He's an example of the rules. And that's why sometimes when people get in leadership, they think that they're the exception, that they can do what they want. They cannot. Number two, sometimes they say, I deserve this. I deserve this. Do you remember what Tiger Woods said? He said, I begin to think that I deserve this. No, we don't deserve anything. It's all the grace of God. Everything that we ever have is from the grace of God. We deserve absolutely nothing. Third thing is sometimes leaders say, I'm above this. No, they're all accountable. So when does this kind of thing happen? When there's two or three accusations, what do you do? There's a public rebuke. How do you do it? Because that's the third thing. This is a charge that Paul gives to Timothy. Look what he says in verse 21. I solemnly charge you. He says, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Now, I want you to notice the charge. It's very powerful because it's before God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the elect angels. Now, elect angels means the angels that did not sin. Uh, according to Hebrews 1.14, the angels are ministering spirits sent to serve us. They're sent by God. They serve God and us. So he's, this charge is very powerful because he doesn't just say, I charge you. He says, I charge you before God and Jesus and the angels. And here's what he says to do in these situations. He says, that you maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. He says, you do what we've said, make sure it's two or three, make sure it's public, do all of these kind of things, and you do this without bias and partiality. Now, bias means to judge beforehand. Partiality means to show favor. He's saying to Timothy that if someone who is a leader gets themselves in trouble with two or three accusations and you bring it in and you find out it's true and you've got to deal with it, you publicly rebuke them. He says, you handle this by not being biased or partial. Because bias means to judge beforehand. Sometimes people make the decision about a person without even hearing the evidence. They may say, oh, somebody made that accusation, he's guilty. You may say, wait a minute. You, you can't judge beforehand. You have to make sure we find out what's true. Second, as he says, Timothy, you can't show partiality. Because you may say, I love this guy. This guy's a great guy. So he messed up. I think the best thing to do is sort of overlook it. Can't do that. He says, I charge you before God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the angels that you do not judge beforehand and you do not show partiality when you're dealing with these issues. Wow. This is, this is really powerful, y'all. And I hope we never have to deal with stuff like this. 
I hope we never have to deal with anything like this in a public way. Would it not be an embarrassment to all of us to have to bring up someone or to have to talk about someone in this body in a public way about those as a leadership, a person in leadership who's done something? You cannot be partial. You cannot be biased. When dealing with these issues, you cannot prejudge or be biased. So... When there's two or three accusations, if it continues, there's a public rebuke, and you have to be impartial. You realize how important it is to put the right men in the right positions. Mistakes can be made by putting people in position before they are ready. Notice the next verse. Do not lay hands on anyone too hastily, and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. He says, Timothy, don't put person in a place of responsibility too quickly. He says, take the time to examine each one. You know, the lay on of hands was a way back in those days that they would say, and sometimes we do it now when we ordain people, but to lay on of hands means you identify with them. You put a person in a place of leadership and you identify with them. That's what laying on of hands is. He's saying, don't put people in leadership too quickly. He says, don't be hastily about this. Make sure you know what that person is like. In fact, if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, it actually says before a person can become a deacon, they need to be tested. What that really means is before a person becomes in a leadership position in our church, we have to have time to have examined their life over a period of time to see how they are, not just a week or two, but we're talking about a year or two years. You have to have time to examine a life. Don't lay hands on too hastily. Notice what he says. If you do that, you will share responsibility for the sins of others. You know what he's saying? That when you put a person in a place of leadership and they mess up because you didn't check them out very well, you are partly responsible. Talking about we as a body. Let me tell you something. I have a friend that's in a church, and the pastor of the church has gone off the deep end. And the church is split, and a bunch of people are leaving, and the pastor's made some wild statements. And what we found out is this, that the church that ordained that pastor, and I have never heard of anyone doing this before, but the church that ordained that pastor has rescinded their ordination of this pastor. In other words, the church that ordained him a long time ago who laid hands on him and said, we recognize you as a pastor and we send you out because of some of the things he's doing. They're saying, we no longer represent you. We no longer say that we're part of you and we rescind your ordination. Because see what's happened? It's too late for them. They're sharing in that responsibility. See, when we ordain people, and we've ordained a number of people over the years, when we do, what we're saying is they represent countryside wherever they go and whatever they do. And if we raise someone up too quickly and ordain them or lay hands on them and send them out and they get into trouble, so to speak, we share that responsibility. That's what he says. Do not lay hands on anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Powerful. He gives one more statement at the end and we'll stop. He says to Timothy, keep yourself free from sin. Timothy is in a great place of leadership in this church. He is the one to appoint the elders. He is the one to oversee the teaching. He is the one to make sure things are running right in the church at Ephesus. And Paul says to Timothy, you keep yourself pure. You keep yourself free from sin is to live a righteous and holy life. Anybody in leadership has got to do that. First Peter says we shall be holy because Jesus Christ is holy. 
Now, from this point, and we'll see it beginning next time, Paul is going to begin to talk about Timothy. He's going to talk about his life. And then he's going to talk about both the good and the bad in people. And we'll see how it ties together. What have we seen this morning? The provision for the elders, the teaching elders, uh, those who teach, those who rule well can get a double honor. They get honor and then money. Uh, in the discipline of elders, there's got to be at least two or three witnesses. They rebuke publicly, and it can't. It's got to be with no bias or partiality. And then finally, take time to examine someone before you put them in leadership. Let me give you some applications. First one, let's be biblical as we deal with elders in this body. Let's be biblical. And as I said earlier, I'm so proud of our church from the very beginning. Let me tell you something. You may not know this. When I came here, they had a constitution, and the constitution didn't have elders or deacons. It just had a little office called trustees. They had no elders or deacons. When I came, I learned something from Dallas Seminary when I graduated there. It was that when you go to a church, don't try to change everything, at least when you first get there. So when I got there, I looked at the Constitution. I took it to one of the men, and I said, a lot of the, I said, I don't mean this bad, but there's some things in this Constitution that aren't biblical. And they said, don't worry about it. Just don't, just ignore it. I said, okay. Well, as time went by, and I taught, and I taught First Timothy, and I taught Titus, so about five years passed in the church, and I was teaching, and I taught about elders and deacons, and people would say, but J.B., we don't have elders and deacons. I said, you're right. And they said, why don't we have elders and deacons? I said, because our Constitution doesn't have elders and deacons. And they said, we need to change that. I said, you're exactly right. And so after I'd been here five years, we actually changed our Constitution to make it fit the Scripture. And that's why, and and of course, bottom line is, it doesn't even matter what our Constitution says. As as long as we obey the Scripture, we're going to always be right. That's the key. So let's let's be biblical as we deal with elders. A, let's select them correctly, which means take time to look at people. Don't raise up somebody too quickly. Give me in time to develop because it is a position of responsibility, and so we must check them out. Second, if there are problems, deal with it biblically. First of all, if there's two or three accusations, you have to deal with it. It goes on to the next slide. There has to be a public rebuke, and it has to be done without bias or partiality. That's what you have to do. The third thing is... Honor them. Those who rule well honor. Those who teach the word, they can get double honor, which is the grace of God for me. The second application is a key because it comes from what he told Timothy, and that is take care of ourselves. In other words, spiritually keep ourselves pure, keep ourselves growing, keep ourselves righteous. As he said back in chapter 4, we ought to strive for righteousness and godliness. Let me give you four things to do. Number one, examine your lives. Examine your lives. Is there any sin in your life? Is there anything in your life that's stopping you from going on to maturity and growing? So examine your lives. Number two is decide to be holy. Now, you've heard me say this. You have to choose that you're going to live godly and be a godly person. It, remember the statement that says that, that if we're not consciously being transformed by the Word of God, we will unconsciously be conformed to this world. You decide, you say, I am going to choose to be a holy person. I'm going to live by the scripture. I'm going to grow. I'm going to do this. That is your choice. The third thing is you have to, in God's power, live according to the Bible because that's the basis for everything. God's power, his strength through his word. And then last but not least, become accountable to others. You have to be accountable. That's how we live in the body. It is an accountability. So may we continue to grow as believers. And make sure we follow biblical patterns, especially when we're dealing with the elders 
in the body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a passage. Thank you for these great truths. Lord, we want to deal biblically with elders. We want to select them in the right way and raise up uh, men as you raise up men after a time of examining them. And Lord, if there were to be problems, we want to handle it biblically with two or three accusations and a public rebuke and, and, and done without bias or partiality. And Lord, thank you that there is an honor there for those who get to teach. Thank you for that. And Lord, we just pray about ourselves that we'll take care of ourselves that we'll be godly men and women. We'll live righteously and godly. We'll examine our lives. We'll decide to be holy. We'll live by the Scripture, and we'll be accountable to others so that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. Lord, thank you for the privilege of, of allowing us to be together. Thank you for the truths of your Word. May we live them out. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.